Good morning, brothers and sisters. Beautiful day? Amen. Um, Substituting for Doug today is a little bit under the weather. Keep him and and others that uh, normally would be here in your prayers. Clara May also. uh, Offenbeckers are off on a weekend jaunt and uh, pray for safety and journey mercies for them as they return. So let's go over a few announcements. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Nehemiah 13, verse 14. Choir is to begin today, however, uh, there is a conflict of scheduling, so we are going to resume it next Sunday at 5 p.m. So all of you that uh, are members that are just chomping at the bits to, to get back into the choir loft and make a joyful noise, as am I. Uh, By the no, way, everybody's invited that likes to sing. Remember, likes to sing. You don't have to be a singer, otherwise they'd have booted me out a long time ago. So uh, tonight we're going to resume our video series on the life of Samson. How far are we along on that? How much more do we have? Halfway. About we're halfway. Just, just About halfway. So if you if you show up tonight, you'll still uh, be able to get a lot of the gist of it. So it's uh, quite interesting on the on the speaker how he presents it. The new Sunday school class for grades seven through ninth will begin next Sunday, on the twentieth. Uh, postponed from this Sunday because of the vacations. Uh, it'll be meeting upstairs library. See Jessica if you have any other questions on that. New Acts and Facts are here for the October, along with the Free Grace Broadcaster. It's available on the foyer table. Don't forget our prayer meetings Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. And I tell you, it's a a joyful time to be there uh, with like-minded brothers and sisters. There is strength in numbers uh, to bring uh, your prayers and petitions to the Lord. Uh, Remember Andrea's contact number here. uh, And... We're thanking you uh, for the faithfulness of your giving. Our, uh, our offerings have had a little bit of an uptick over the last few weeks, and that's, that's a very hopeful thing. And then number nine, our deacons are, are continuing work on the building. Uh, and we thanks for all the hard help and labor that they've imparted. Uh, thank you especially to Pam. She did all the painting, the trim around the side of the building, the front steps. It's, it, it really sets it off nice. It's lovely. Thank you, Pam. Uh, one quick uh, item here that's not in the bulletin. Deacons and elders were to meet immediately after service this morning to talk about uh, some further renovations on the building. Uh, promises to be quick, so... We gather up and get that taken care of. Have I missed anything? Anybody got anything else to add? All right. Our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. That would be page 1848 in your pew Bible.
Before we begin our service, I was going to ask Brenda, uh, Tom is scheduled for hip surgery. Do you have a date yet or anything? Is he, find a is he progressing along okay, or well, I assume he's still in a lot of pain? Well, yes, it's kind of miserable. Sure. As we begin our service, uh, whoever leads us this morning, uh, let's let's be sure to remember our brother that uh, the pain would be mitigated in all of this. Let's stand and uh, start our service in prayer. George, would you lead us, please? <coughs> Please remain standing. Will you take your uh, brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 294. Sorry, 249. <clears throat> 249 in the brown hymnal.
seated. I had some hands before you even sat down, but one of the hands came to me before <coughs> service, so um, Lydia. Yes, what's your favorite hymn and the reason? Four seven seven in the brown. She thinks. Four seven seven in the brown. We used to sing this at home a lot. The first verse, especially standing up in the bathtub, when we wanted to stand up. So we'd learn the hymn. <laughs> scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 6 through 14, page 773 in the Pew Bible. Would you stand with us as we do the reading? 
While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I had discovered the evil that Elishib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessel of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levite that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil to the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. O remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for his service. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Take your red Trinity hymnal this time and turn to 524, 524 in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is from Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13, verses 6 and following. We begin to look at Nehemiah's final reforms from chapter 13. On this day of dedication and festivity, the book of Moses was read to the people. In Israel's calendar year, there never was a purely secular holiday. They were all sanctified by the reading of the scriptures by thanksgiving to God. Every holiday we celebrate should find a place for God in our thoughts. Think about this. Memorial Day? Yeah, I know we remember those that gave their life in our country, but I think of Christ and how he gave his life for his people. You you can find something in each of our holidays. Thanksgiving is an obvious one, right? Christmas, another obvious one. But try to think of those things uh, to celebrate in our culture The people of the world do these things too, but they don't bring into the celebration the spiritual thoughts of what the holiday is for or what it could be for. At the reading of the law, this generation of Israelites discovered that no Ammonite uh, or Moabite was to enter the assembly of the Lord. These were enemies of Israel's by their own doing. Tobiah was an Ammonite living in the house of God, of all things, in a quarters appeared for him by Eliashib the priest. Whoa. He was an apostate, Tobiah. He was a person who knew the truth, enjoyed the benefits of being named with the people of God, understood something of the will of God revealed in Scripture, and then he fell away. That's what an apostate is. And the scripture teaches that apostates become the most bitter enemies of the faith they once professed. Oh, and by the way, they never come back to God. They never do. They're in the group. They feign allegiance and faith to Christ. And then their true colors later show up. They leave the faith and they never come back. In fact, they come become some of the most violent enemies of the cross uh, that society produces. The mark of a child of God is that we per- persevere with God to the end. We don't fall away. We drew out a number of lessons. Similar conduct does not mean similar motives. And it is the motive of the heart which God reads all the time during our holiday celebrations. Secondly, we learn that separation from the world does not mean physical isolation. It doesn't mean physical withdrawal from society, but a separation in the heart. In the world, that's where we're at, we are to be salt and light. We don't leave the world. We're there to function as God's ministers and witnesses. And then thirdly, we learn that apostasy is a deadly sin, receiving no forgiveness and no restoration from God. Well, today's lesson brings us to the same chapter, really the same verses that we read last week. 
But there are some precious truths here that I don't want to gloss over, so that's why we're back at the same text, as we want to talk today about trustworthy, trustworthy men. As we do, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for again the opportunity to study your word. Just as we talked about our title this morning, Trustworthy Men, it includes trustworthy women as well. And we pray, Lord, for trustworthy men and women from our church that we might be faithful to you to the end. It's going to be rough in days to come. We're already seeing the uh, spirit of Antichrist. John said way back when he wrote, 1 John, that the spirit of Antichrist was then present in the church. Well, what can we say about it today? We can look at the church in America and see that a lot of them are apostate. They've denied the faith of Christ that they one time preached and taught. And their people are getting pablum. Their people are being taught lies for truth. Please preserve us from that. Give us trustworthy men and women. Obedient to the scriptures, we pray for the glory of our Savior, in whose name we give thanks. Amen. We're talking today about trustworthy men. Last week we learned of what Nehemiah called the evil thing, that's his words, the evil thing that had been done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God, verse 7. We should note here that Eliashib was the high priest of Israel. He's one who did a good thing in chapter Three, by rallying the other priests to build a large section of the wall. Remember, they're building, rebuilding the wall that Nebuchadnezzar's armies uh, crashed down. They're rebuilding them, and Eliashib was involved in that. So it was commendable for him to be a priest like the one which the writer of Hebrews describes. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, who offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. Hebrews 5, the first three verses. Well, Eliashib was the kind of priest who could relate to the people. He was there with his fellow priests, working on the wall, getting his hands dirty and Manual labor along with the rest of the workers. He did not attempt to maintain some kind of a superior attitude. He did not think of himself as being above the labors of ordinary men. So I don't think any of that should be taken away from him. Commendable in all of those respects. But we notice as well that the observation of Hebrews 5 and verse 2 also applies... The writer of Hebrews says such priests are subject to weakness. Whoa, yeah. Well, Eliashib had a weakness. And his weakness resulted in terms of his relationship to Tobiah because Tobiah was a relative of his through marriage. We would call it favoritism. You've all heard the expression, well, blood is thicker than water, which means that relatives come before other relationships. 
That's not necessarily a bad thing when you think about it. We ought to love the families with whom God has made us a fellow member. Families ought to count very highly on our list of relationships that we endeavor to cultivate and foster. But there is one area where family may not take precedence. And that is when family is compared to our relationship with God. Jesus taught that we may not, we may not love father, mother, sister, brother, parent, child more than we love God. You'll find that in Matthew 10, verse 37, Luke 14, verse 26, it's repeated. Oh, and it's very serious. Jesus says if we do love relatives higher than him, we cannot be his disciple. Wow. I didn't know it was that serious, did you? What I want you to see here with Eliashib is that he was a good man who did a bad thing. He was a priest, spiritual leader of the people who fell into a grievous sin himself. He preferred the honor of Tobiah, his relative, over the honor of God. And in, his, in that he com- compromised his faith and he set a poor example for the people to follow. I have to say, sometimes we ministers do bad things. You need to pray for me and for any of us that are in leadership in ministry. We are not above looking at things through foggy glasses. We can get caught up with personalities and we can be intimidated and we can forget the honor of God. Eliashib should have never let Tobiah in the door, let alone in the house of God. He was an Arab, an enemy of God. He had proven himself an enemy to the people of God on numerous occasions. You can read the context. So what a mixed signal this must have sent to Israel. How can we have an enemy of God living in the temple? (laughs) Well, Nehemiah saw it for what it was, an evil thing, he calls it. And then he threw Tobiah out. Eliashib saw nothing wrong with the arrangement. (laughs) He was blinded by his own association with Tobiah. He should have kept his eye on God and on God's glory, but he didn't. You say, well, uh, just how bad a thing was this that Eliashib did? Well, one thing we note is that Nehemiah believed it was necessary, reading scripture now, to purify the rooms, verse 9, which Tobiah had occupied. In the temple. Now that does not mean that Tobiah was a dirty housekeeper or anything like that. It means that his unbelieving heart, his posture as an enemy of God, had defiled the courts of God's house. 
And so a ceremonial cleansing had to take place to right wrongs. If you look at 1 Chronicles 28, chapter 24, verse 28, let me read it for you. The duty of the Levites was to help Aaron's descendants in the services of the temple of the Lord to be in charge of the courtyards, the side rooms, the purification of all sacred things, and the performance of other duties at the house of God. 1 Chronicles 24, 28. And if you check 2 Chronicles chapter 29, you will discover that the purification process involved the removal of everything considered defiling. That's what we have in verse 8 of our text. Tobias, things were thrown out. (laughs) And the sacrifice of sin offerings to atone for the defile. So Tobiah's residency at the temple was such a, of such a vile nature that this purification rite had to be performed before the temple was ready for the worship of God again. Now I think that's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Sad state of, state of affairs in Israel. The second thing we observe is that while Tobiah occupied the storehouses in the temple, and think about where, where this is, the storehouses, the storerooms in the temple, while he occupied those storerooms, the grain offerings, the incense, the temple articles, the tithe of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the caper, gatekeepers were, was not in those rooms, verse 5. I mean, it's just logical. Think about this. When Tobiah moved in, the normal provisions for the ministers of the temple moved out. And this was such a complete transition that Nehemiah observed that none of the temple ministers, the Levites and the singers, had been supported, thus forcing them to leave the ministry and return to, he says, their own fields. Verse 10. Well, (laughs) what were they to do? They couldn't feed their families any longer. So they left the ministry and they returned to farming. Nehemiah called this a neglect of the house of God, verse 11. Now, not the temple structure of wood and marble and all of that. He's referring to the neglect of God's ministers whose life work was to assist Aaron's descendants, the priests, in their intercession for the people. So what I see here is a duplicity in the culpability of this evil. Let me explain. Eliashib set up Tobiah, an Arab, an enemy of Israel, in an apartment in the house of God, using the storerooms reserved for the tithes and offerings which supported the ministry. That's one sin. But the people complied 
by not bringing the tithes and offerings, by not demanding that Tobiah give up the storerooms which had been reserved for temple worship. So, Eliashib, the priest, set the bad example and the people complied. So if we were to ask how bad and evil was this that Eliashib did, we'd have to answer, yeah, it was pretty bad. It was an action which preferred Tobiah over God. It was an action which led Israel to sin by failing to bring the tithes and offerings of God's work into the work into the temple. Dual problem here. An enemy in the temple of God and God's people not ministering with the tithes and offerings which God had commanded. Now there's some important lessons here for us to take to heart. One for us who are in the position of leadership in the church and one for you as members of the church. The lesson for us who are in leadership position is this. Good men can do bad things. Even good leaders and good ministers. I've already established the fact that Eliashib had a good heart for the people. He worked hand in hand with them on the arduous work of rebuilding the wall. But... He still sinned by preferring the honor of Tobiah, his son-in-law, over the honor of God. And what he did set a bad example for the people and contributed in no small way to their sin of neglecting the house of God, not meaning the building, but the ministers that comprise the house of God. Wow. You know, the Bible is full of good leaders who did bad things. It is. Sad to say. Remember Noah? Noah got drunk before his sons and he disgraced himself and brought a curse on Canaan. Genesis chapter 9, you can read about it. Eli so pampered his sons and ignored their sin of fornication and greed that it cost him his life. And the life of his sons. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murder with Uriah. Solomon built high places for his foreign wives to worship their idols. And in time he was wooed away from his devotion to Jehovah by their evil influence. Samson could not control his sexual appetites and brought much heartache on himself and Israel as he pursued an avenue for his lusts and brought the persecution of the Philistines upon Israel. We could go on, we could go on and on. In light of this, I would say to all of us here this morning who are leaders, myself as pastor, every elder, every deacon, every Sunday school teacher, we must not take our leadership lightly. We must not think that we are special in the sense of being above sin. We must not think that everything we do is right in the sight of God. We must not count upon our own wits and our own know-how to see us through difficult times. 
Instead, we must be men of prayer. We must be leaders who take Christ as our example. And those Christ-like men, like Nehemiah, whose walk with God was right and pure. We must never think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, says the Apostle Paul. You see, Eliashib forgot his position, which was high priest of God. Wow. Had he thought of his role, his responsibility, he could have never in good conscience opened the temple storerooms as an apartment for one who was the enemy of God and his people. He could have never put a relative above devotion to God. We who minister in these days need to be reminded of this. Pastors and church leaders are dropping like flies in our day. They are falling into immorality and greed and covetousness. Just watch the televangelists on TV if you think I'm making this up. They're messed up in their priorities, sometimes putting family above God or compromising doctrinal truth for a false peace. They're losing their vision for a lost world and hurting people while becoming preoccupied with their own personal wants and comforts. To stay focused is essential. You remember Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. In the sea. And we will sing too. If self. Supersedes the Lord. Great lesson for all of us. That are in leadership positions. But there's a lesson here. For those who are not leaders. The lesson for the people. Is this. Listen. You have no right to follow the bad example of good leaders who do an evil thing. And if you do, you are culpable before God for your own ruin. As I was examining this text and discovered that Eliashib set up Tobiah in the storehouses of the temple thereby filling the space that would be utilized for the tithes and offerings and gifts of God's people, I asked myself this question. How could the people let this happen? I mean, if Eliashib was guilty of a great evil for making the enemy of God a house guest in God's temple, the people were guilty of a great evil for cutting off the life support of their ministers, the tithes and offerings, thereby forcing those ministers to resort to their secular labors again to support their families. Oh, they, had, they went back home to their farms. The sin is here, as I see it, was the sin of greed. Greed on the part of the people. I mean, when Eliashib made 
Tobiah a permanent house guest, the people saw this, well, this is a great opportunity to stop giving to the work of God. We don't have to support the ministers anymore. What are we going to do with the tithes and offerings? Think of the money we're saving. Think of the hard labor of bringing in those grain offerings and putting them in the storehouse. Well, we don't have to do that anymore. The storerooms are all full of Tobiah and his furniture. You remember the tithe was a portion to God, by God, to go to the Levites, chapter 12, verse 44 and following. The Levites owned no property in Israel. Remember this. Their income from the tithe was their inheritance. Deuteronomy 10, verse 9, you can read about it. So they didn't have any terra firma, no property. You know, the love of money will make people do some very strange things. Some peoples will, sometimes people will look for cheap solutions because it will mean they don't have to give as much. Or they will make do with less in terms of service because, well, that too saves money. If you think this way, you may have a problem with greed, which the Bible calls covetousness or idolatry, Colossians 3, verse 5. The Corinthian church suffered from this sin. When the Jerusalem church underwent severe persecution, people lost their jobs, many of the women were made widows as their husbands were martyred or imprisoned for their faith. Whole families were uprooted. Economic hardship resulted, leaving people without homes, without clothing, without food. And the numbers were so large that the Jerusalem church just could not absorb all of the financial burden. One church couldn't handle this. So, the Corinthian church responded to the crisis by suggesting to the sister churches of Greece that a collection of money be received and sent to the suffering at Jerusalem. This was a marvelous idea. One which met with quick and hearty response. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth telling them of the response of the Macedonian churches to their north. Let me read it for you. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the saints. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2. I love this text so much because it is such a model example of the selfless Christian life. The Macedonian churches were not wealthy churches. They had problems of their own. Paul says extreme poverty. He also mentions they were under severe trial, which, 
at least implies that like the Jerusalem church, they were undergoing some form of persecution for their faith. They were, we could say, in our colloquialism, they were in a bad way. They were in a bad way themselves. But out of this severe trial that Paul says, out of their extreme poverty, there came overflowing joy and rich generosity. They had no money to spare, but they dug deep anyway. They might have justly argued that their own plight was as grave as anything going on over there in Jerusalem. And therefore, they would have to, oh, we're sorry, we're just going to have to excuse ourselves in this special offering that's being taken. No, instead they counted their participation a privilege, the scripture says, and they pleaded with Paul to allow them to participate. You know why? Because Paul knew their state and he wasn't going to ask them for anything. No, no, I can just hear Paul. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make out our right. The Jerusalem church will fare okay. Uh, you just, you, you're in need yourself. You just keep your money. They had to plead with Paul to participate. The world would call them fools. But God has immortalized them on the pages of Holy Scripture as people devoted to God and keepers of his will. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5. This was the church's of Macedonia. Okay, but what about the church at Corinth? Paul says last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, I'm still reading scripture. Now, Corinthians, finish the work. At the present time, you're plenty will supply their need. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10 and following. Oh, wow. Okay. Unlike the Macedonian churches, Corinth was a wealthy church. No extreme poverty there. But a year later, after getting the ball rolling, this church was now dragging its feet and coming up with its gift. What was the problem? Paul said that he had been bragging them up to the churches of Macedonia. And he writes, But I am sending the brothers, Titus being among them, by the way, in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as you said you would be, and we ask the question, ready for what? He goes on, for the generous gift you promised. Not as one grudgingly given. King James Version says, not born out of covetousness. Second Corinthians 9, verse 3 and following. You know, brethren, it is an odd thing about covetousness and greed. One would think that people who were dirt poor 
would be the ones who would hang on tenaciously to every penny that they had. It would seem logical to us that the poor have so little to start with that they could ill afford to give up anything, let alone give generously. But you know what? I have observed in ministry the direct opposite. It seems that those most infected by greed are those like the Corinthians who are sitting pretty. That is, they have money in the bank. Everyone in their home is employed. Their house is paid for. All their bills are paid. And retirement count is accruing a steady influx of money. And yet they're so tight they squeak when they walk. They pinch every penny till it hollers, uncle. And they justify such fastidiousness with regard to money as, well, I'm just being a good steward. Uh, I'm being fiscally responsible. But it isn't any of that at all. It's just the old wicked sins of greed and selfishness and covetousness. I mean, when you can find poor people out giving those that have money and resources, that kind of says it all. I think this was Israel's problem in our text here. They had a bad leader that gave them an out that gave them someone to blame. Well, you know, it was Eliashib who moved Tobiah into the storerooms. We didn't have any place to store the ties. That wasn't our doing. Eliashib instigated the whole thing. Don't blame us. Brethren, you are never off the hook because you can find a scapegoat to blame. If I were the most wicked pastor on the earth and people followed my evil example, God would hold me culpable, that's for sure. I would come under his wrath, to be sure, but they would not escape either. God reads the heart. He sees the charade. And if there is compliance in the people with the sins of their leaders, both are to blame. Both are to blame. I do not want our church ever to be hobbled by the sin of follow the leader when the leader does wrong. And I do not want us to be strangled by the sin of greed. So, my question is, is greed slipping into our hearts here? It's so easy to do. We flip a coin and we say, heads you win, God. Tails you lose. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. It came up tails. You lose. No, brethren, you lose. I lose. 
when stinginess rather than generosity becomes the philosophy of our lives. Can you outgive God? Really, I think, think about this. Fortunately, there's a third lesson in our text which must be taken to heart, and it's a lesson not for the leaders alone and not for the lay members alone, but for both of us together. And that is the sin of the leadership and the sin of the people in general can be reversed with when trustworthy men can be found to turn things around. Notice that when Nehemiah discovered the sin of Eliashib and the subsequent sin of the people in not pressing the issue of the tithe, Nehemiah, verse 11, rebuked the officials. That's the place to start, right? With the people in control. And then he appointed men and made them responsible to distribute the tithe to their brothers, verse 13. And whom did Nehemiah appoint as treasurers? Verse 13. A priest, a scribe, a Levite, and a layman called Hanan. These were representatives from every group of people who had been involved in the wicked deed. Took out four representatives. And the scripture says all of these men were considered trustworthy. Wow. Not every last person in the four groups mentioned had had a direct hand in approving Tobias' residency in the temple and the cessation of the ties going to the ministers. There were some who were guilty only by association with those who had done the evil, the evil deed. So Nehemiah wisely chose trustworthy men from each of the representative groups and assigned them the task of cleaning up their own ranks. Oh, when they did, boy, did they. Tobiah was booted out. We would say he was thrown out on the street. All of his belongings just thrown out of the temple rooms. Him too. And then the temple rooms were ceremonially purified. The utensils of worship were put back in place. Verse 9. Verse 12 says, All Judah brought the tithe of grain and new wine and oil into those storerooms. Wow. Verse 13 says that those supplies were then distributed by these four trustworthy men to their brothers, that is the ministers. Verse 10. Which means they could come back from their farms and could go back into ministry. You see, trustworthy men can do a lot. Doesn't take an army to turn things around and right wrongs. It just takes four people who are committed to God and his word. Are you looking for a lightning bolt from God to turn our church around, bring it closer to God? Are you praying for revival because you think it's going to take great numbers of people coming to repentance and obedience to set things right in America? Well, you're wrong. 
It only takes four. It only takes two. It only takes you. You say, wait a minute, wait, wait just a minute. Four I can see, maybe two, but what can, what can one person do? Follow with me now in your Bibles. Look at verse 7. This is Nehemiah. I learned, verse 8, I was greatly displeased. Verse 9, I gave orders. I put back the equipment. Verse 10, I also learned. Verse 11, so I rebuked the officials. Verse 13, I put the priests, the scribes, the Levites, and Hanan in charge of the storerooms. Verse 14, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Brethren, one man, Nehemiah, was the catalyst for every reform which took place here. He's not boasting. He's just telling the truth. I, I, I. It had to start with somebody. One man took the bull by the horns, as we would say, and said, this evil must end. It must end today. It must be turned to good. And in a matter of hours, a sin which had festered for all these weeks and months that Nehemiah was away reporting to King Artaxerxes was reversed in those little bit of time, and order and righteousness was restored. It just takes one. It just takes you. Will you be able to say in the day of Christ's coming, remember me, O my God, and and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Be faithful, brethren. Though I might fail as your leader at times, or a deacon, or an elder, isn't all that you expect us to be? Though all the church take a wrong direction, you be trustworthy even if you have to stand alone. But I am pleased to say, however, that many, many people in our church fall into the category of working for God. Behind the scenes and without much fanfare, people are teaching children about God and mowing the grass and painting the building and counseling women in crisis pregnancy and homeschooling their kids and visiting the sick and binding up broken hearts and evangelizing the lost by pointing them to Jesus, giving sacrificially to missions and to the church, and praying for the saints in general. God will not blot out what you are faithfully doing for the house of God and its services. So just keep it up. Say, well, we're so little. What, what can we do? We're doing what we know to do. We're being faithful to teaching God's word. And hopefully, I pray we are, 
living out the gospel responsibilities to a watching dead culture that needs to hear of Jesus and his salvation. If they can see us living it, not just speaking it, but living it, it is a powerful testimony. Lord Jesus, help us. I pray to continue to be a light and a beacon to this community. And especially wherever we are, in terms of our family, in terms of our work, what about our employment? Are we the light and the salt that those employees can see the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives? Do they know that we're different, not just different in the sense of being odd, but different in the sense that we love God and love his righteousness? And we live that way. Not perfectly, but because of the grace and mercy of God, we live that way. And hopefully our lives point to the righteousness that can be found in Jesus. Lord, help us to continue to live that way. When the world sees us, may they see Christ. When they see Christ, may they want Christ. May they want to know about him. May they want to seek out his forgiveness and the new vitality that can be brought into their lives through faith and repentance. Bless these truths to our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 558 in the red hymnal, 558. Let's stand together as we sing.
We thank you, Lord, that we are never, we are never the losers for followers of you and your word. You bless us. Sometimes it looks like the world is winning, like wickedness is winning. But that's because we're only temporal in our understanding. We cannot see the big picture. Although the big picture is portrayed for us in the prophecies of the scripture. When we compare them with what has happened in the past, we see that whatever you promised has come true. So whatever is still yet to come is also true and will be fulfilled right down to the last letter. We thank you for that. Bless us as we live in our culture. We pray that we will be culture relevant with the gospel, that we will bring the truth of the gospel to people who don't know it. People of our culture, they're not reading their Bibles. They may have a Bible, but it's sitting on a self shelf somewhere. They don't attend church. They're not listening to gospel preaching. They're not praying. They're just living for pleasure. Paying bills, making money, enjoying themselves in the things of this life. Forgetting that life here is temporal at best. Sinful at best. There's a world yet to come facing judgment, life eternal thereafter. Help us to get our heads on straight, to be thankful, working in the service of God, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.